A couple of weeks ago, uh, as an introduction to one of the messages out of Acts, book of Acts, uh, we looked at Acts chapter, or excuse me, Daniel chapter one, verse eight. Uh, the setting was that Daniel and young men and, and others like him had been taken captive by the Babylonians and uh, brought from Jerusalem and Judea, where they were relatively free to live faithfully uh, before Yahweh under the covenant to a culture that they knew is going to be entirely antagonistic. And so Daniel 1 verse 8 said Daniel had already made up his mind that he wasn't going to transgress. He was going to remain faithful to the Lord so that when the temptation arose as far as eating foods that for him would represent being unfaithful to Yahweh, he said, no thanks, we're not going there, I'm not going there. This morning I want to look at a passage very briefly from Daniel chapter 3. You know, Daniel was one of thousands of Jews who were relocated to Babylon, and Daniel had some friends that were relocated with him as well. Their Hebrew names, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, better known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The story started this way. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and Daniel interpreted it for him. And the dream included this statue made up of various metals, and the head was a head of gold. And I think this went to Nebuchadnezzar's head because he was the head of gold. God told him, you're, you're the epitome of royalty. Well, he made a statue, an idol of gold. And he set it up and then he required basically the Babylonian administrators to come. And he said, this is the thing. When the music plays, you guys bow down and you worship this idol to myself, my glory. That's what you do when when the music starts up. So all these administrators, they come, the music starts, they bow down, and these three Hebrew boys don't. Daniel's not in this story, we don't know why, where he was, but he's not there, and they are. So they're brought before Nebuchadnezzar, and this is what he says. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So here's the threat. You, you obey, you comply, or else. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. We don't need to go away. We don't need to talk about it. We don't need to discuss it because we've already made up our minds, just like Daniel. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Either in life or death, we'll be delivered out from your reign, your rule, your kingdom. But if not, if he doesn't save us in life, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So come what may, whatever the consequences are, you need to know, we're telling you ahead of time, we're not going there. We're not bowing, we're not worshiping your idol. We've already made up our minds about this. Not only had they made up their minds, guys, not to defile their faith in Yahweh, but they'd already decided to accept the consequences. They'd already decided to accept the consequences. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
There are a few stories in Scripture that are this compelling. There's a great Johnny Cash song. They wouldn't bow, they wouldn't bend, they wouldn't burn. It's a great refrain. You can look it up later. I can tell you're unimpressed, but it's worth hearing. <laughs> it's a moving story. You know, kids have heard the story about these guys in the furnace, right? It's memorable. More often than not, though, for us, the challenges you and I face, looking ahead, what temptations do we face, and what would the repercussions or what would the consequences of not going along and getting along, what would those look like? They're probably not going to be this dramatic, right? And there may not be a fiery furnace on the line, but we are going to face temptations and remain faithful to Christ means there will be consequences to your faithfulness. For the last two weeks, we've been talking about times and situations in which Christians may find it necessary or advisable to disobey an authority they would normally comply with. So if I disobey an authority figure, there's a good chance I'm going to get consequences. This morning, we'll emphasize that when we choose to reject an authority, we need to do so willing to suffer the consequences of faithfulness to God. So the decision to stay faithful and true, that's one thing. That's what we've talked about. But the other thing is what comes with faithfulness. What's the payment? What's the price we pay for faithfulness? Consequences aren't always the kind our three Hebrew friends faced, and they aren't always due to refusing to comply with an authority. We, we talked about that, and so that's sort of one of the arenas of life in which you might say, I feel compelled to disobey an authority. And we're saying, well, when we do that, what are the consequences? We need to be ready to take those into account as well. More often than not, our decisions remaining about remaining faithful to Christ aren't written up in stories. Usually, the challenges you and I are going to face, others may have no knowledge about. And they may not be told in the annals of somebody's book in the future. They may not sit down and read your story of facing temptation, what the consequences were. The challenges to faithfulness for most of us are more often than not of a quiet, more personal type. Will we tell the truth when it's more convenient not to? Will we tell the truth? Will we honor Scripture and conscience when doing so is costly? Will we confess Christ when there's a temptation to keep silent? Suffering for the Christian as the fruit of persecution or the fruit of simple faithfulness, we'll talk a little bit about both today, is not a strange concept in Scripture, though it may be to us. It's an expectation born of following Jesus in the same world system that crucified him. You know, part of the challenges for Christians in the West is we've had it relatively so easy, so good, so long that we think persecution and suffering as a Christian is an anomaly. But guys, historically, it's the given. It's not the anomaly. It's been an anomaly in a short period of history for us in the West, but that's not the history of Christianity through the world, nor is it the promise, of course, Jesus made those who follow him faithfully. While God's common grace provides us all kinds of great comforts, good things, all of which we love, it's still in the midst of a world that is in rebellion against God, and that rebellion is only on the rise. Jesus said, Beware when all men speak well of you. Beware when all men speak well of you, Luke 6, 26, because... If everyone in the world that crucified Jesus thinks well of us, there's probably too much of the world and too little of Christ about us. 
Again, this is still the Christ-rejecting culture. Being out of favor with non-Christians is not, please don't misunderstand me, being obnoxious. It's not about sort of having a, a view of life that I'm disrespectful to the authorities God's placed me under. We're not saying anything like that. But it is often simply the fruit of bearing the aroma of Christ. And guys, this is what's going on today. We'll talk about again biblically and practically. Christians just being Christians will suffer persecution and need to be aware of that ahead of time and need to be ready to accept the consequences. When we choose to reject an authority in order to be faithful or when we simply know that honoring Christ will prove costly in less confrontational settings, we need to do so hopefully, this is the biblical call, hopefully, joyfully, understanding that God values, applauds, and rewards suffering for righteousness. So we're called to this. We're not getting into these books much this morning, but First and Second Peter make this clear. This is the expectation of Christians to suffer because of who we belong to. 1 Peter 2.12 says this, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So live in an honorable way before the world. He says, So that when they speak against you as evildoers. And notice the qualifier. He doesn't say if they do. He says, When you're spoken of evilly, because you're a follower of Christ, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Guys, that's not in this life. That's at Christ's appearing. Don't assume you're vindicated. Don't assume you're validated in this life, in this lifetime. Peter's thing is at the visitation, at Christ's appearing. Verse 19 in 1 Peter 2, this is a gracious thing. This is a good thing. This is something that God favors. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So this is the call to Christians. It hasn't been the norm for most of us in the recent historic past, but it has been the norm for the church, and it is normative around the world today, and it's becoming more normative right here in the good old USA. Kent spoke about suffering a few weeks ago. Larry spoke about being careful in our relationships with authorities in his summer series. We're going to touch on a couple of those themes a little differently this morning. We're going to start in Acts. This is part of the series Act Out, so that is where we're starting. We'll look at the early church experience related to suffering, and then we'll move from there. So if you have your Bibles or your apps, you can open to Acts 5, and we'll hop, skip, and jump through these. We just want to see, because the issue today is we've made up our minds, what's the consequence so I've chosen to be faithful, come hell or high water. What does that require of me? What do I need to be aware of? What kind of consequences do I need to be aware of that are going to come when I choose to be faithful? So we'll start with the early church in Acts. So Acts 5, verses 40 and 41, I'll quote in just a second. But you remember a lesson just a week or two ago, we, we said the apostles were brought before the Jewish leaders and they'd healed a guy miraculously, and they'd shared the gospel. They're preaching in Christ's name. They're called before the leaders. They say, hey, no talking about Jesus around here. And so they let him go, and they went back out, and they started doing the same thing again, and they're brought back in. And in Acts chapter 5, they said, hey, we told you to stop. You remember, and, and Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. Okay, so this is at the end of that meeting. And when they called in the apostles, so... Second conversation, second time they're told, don't you do this again. They called the apostles back in. They beat them. 
And they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council. Now check this out. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They rejoiced. So they're beaten. So what have they done? They've only they've preached Christ. They've preached the truth in the temple in Jerusalem. And they got a beating for it. They got a licking for it. And what's their response? They're rejoicing. They're not rejoicing that they got a whooping. They're rejoicing that they've been identified as Christ's. And this is exactly what Jesus told them would happen. So it's happening, and they rejoice because we are numbered among Christ's faithful. That's the deal. They get a whooping, they get a beating, and they go away joyfully because they're thinking, this is it, this is what we were called to, and it's happening. It's happening already, it's happening now. In Acts 7, which is a great, you know, it's such a a wonderful story, Stephen's defense to the Jewish leaders. So Stephen goes through this this, uh, lengthy treatment, showing, basically showing the Jewish leaders, Jewish leaders always get it wrong. And you guys have got it wrong, just like everybody else before you. And uh, the, the imagery in that telling, right, is great at the end. It says, Stephen, he's filled with the Spirit, and it says his face looks like the face of an angel. And what, are their, what, is, what does their countenance look like? They look like a pack of wolves. And he's the sheep. And he's for supper. And they take him out. They're enraged. And they stone him to death. What does Stephen get for simply preaching, proclaiming the truth to the people who should have embraced it too? He's murdered. He's stoned to death. That's what he got for it. In Acts 8, verse 1, that next verse, as soon as we hear about Stephen's demise... It says a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem rose and they were scattered. It doesn't tell us what this looked like, but guys, it got so hot so quickly that Christians, the new believing Jews, Jesus followers, they fled Jerusalem. They got out of town because it was simply too hot. They didn't know what was going to happen. So they fled. So there's persecution there as well. If you get to Acts 9, we get the story of Saul And Saul is commissioned, and he probably wasn't alone in this. He has permission from the Jewish authorities to go to other cities like Damascus. And what's he going to do? He's going to arrest Jews. He's going to bind them, and he's going to bring them back to be tried for being Christians, for being Christ's followers. Acts 12, verses 1 and 2, and this just comes out of the blue The Apostle James, John's brother, was martyred by Herod, just out of the blue. Execute him, and it found such favor with everybody, he's ready to to do more. Peter and Paul were both reported to have been executed in Rome about 65 A.D. And if you read Paul's uh, part of Paul's biography in 2 Corinthians 11, The demonstration of his faithfulness as Christ's apostle includes things like imprisonments, beatings, stonings, lashings. He goes through this list. He's been betrayed by friends. He's been betrayed by foes. This is the evidence of his apostleship. It was his suffering for Christ. It was the consequences of him simply doing what Christ had called him to do. And if you know history in the early church at all, persecutions were just like the seasons in the Roman Empire. They came and went a little bit as far as how severe they were, but really until the 300s, they were were constant, like storms coming through. 
Believers in the early church faced persecution and suffering while doing nothing more than proclaiming Christ, loving God, and loving their neighbors. They weren't rebels in an uprising. They weren't hazardous to the lives or health of others around them. They were good neighbors. They were faithful employees. They were exemplary citizens. But the culture they were in required worship, and not to Jesus, but to Caesar. One of these things that came up in the life of the church early on, when the Christians said, Jesus is Lord, this was an affront to the Romans. The Romans didn't care if you believed in Jesus, as long as you believe in Jesus plus. You can't just believe in Jesus. So for the Romans, and guys, many Christians had this offer. You'd be brought before the governor, whoever it was, whoever's representing Rome, and you'd be told, offer incense to Caesar, bow to the golden statue. Offer incense to Caesar and call him Lord. Caesar is Lord, and you're good to go. And you can go follow Jesus off on the side. You can do whatever you want. As long as you offer incense to Caesar and say Caesar is Lord, you're fine. Because we don't care how many gods you believe in. But you may not believe in only one. So you affirm, you, you give us this little bit of obeisance and everything is fine and you can march down the road. And you know, more Christians than not said no thanks and they, they suffered the consequences of that decision. Just as a reminder, more recently in history, you know in the Soviet Union and China, it's not illegal to be a Christian. We sometimes think it's illegal. It's not illegal to be a Christian in either of those settings. But this is the way it looks. You go to the church they approve of, the times they say they may meet under the lessons that, they, that the atheists approve. There is no living out your faith in the public square. But religion's not illegal. And they'll tell you that. And they'll tell the West that. No, Christians are here. We have Christians. And these are the churches. You can go to the church. You simply may not live out your faith outside the walls of that church. Can you see where this culture and this nation is going, guys? That's exactly where we're going. And that's why this is so important for us to be considering today. You could be safe if you went along, but to renounce all other gods was to incur the judgment of the idolatrous culture, which was not going to have it. This culture today is not okay with Christians being Christians and living at peace. This culture requires we worship their gods and their morality. And guys, this is coming up. I'll give you some instances here in a little bit. But this is coming up as Christians are being hauled before courts because they refuse to bow to the new gods. They refuse to comply with worship of the new moralities. That's where we are, and I I think this is going to get much worse. Our own culture is not far removed from the one in Acts. You can follow Christ, you can go to church, you can live peacefully as long as you affirm the culture's views of morality and this culture's gods, this culture's golden statues and idols. Then and now to live in subjection to Christ in a world that rejects Him or relegates Him to the sidelines requires a readiness of mind, a purpose of heart to suffer for His name to accept the consequences of faithfulness. If you have your Bibles or apps, turn to Hebrews 10. The challenges we face as individuals, they won't all look the same. We're not always going to face the same temptations. That'll vary with each of us. And so will the consequences. 
So Hebrews is written about the same time that the book of Acts is winding down. Okay, so sometime before the fall of the temple in 70 AD. So in Hebrews, the author is describing the challenges here in this chapter facing Christians about the same time the book of Acts was written. And Christians are tempted to forsake Christ. And guys, what is happening is Jewish believers had trusted Christ, they're following Christ, and they're getting hammered. They're being persecuted. They are living under the consequences of calling Christ Lord. And it's hard and it's not easy. And they're being tempted to renounce Christ in order just to make life a little easier, just to be able to get along a little easier like they used to. And so this is what the author says in part. He says, uh, recall the former days, so think back, of times of your faith. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, the light of the gospel, it's become yours. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings. So sufferings aren't new to you. You've been there. You've lived this. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Guys, this is public shaming. They had their own cancel culture. That's exactly what was going on. Sometimes you were being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. I'm not okay because I say you're okay and you're being faithful to Christ. Well, now I'm not okay either. You had compassion on those in prison. These are Christians in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. You lost wealth and property in Christ's name for the consequence of faithfulness to Christ. And you did so joyfully. And guys, even, even this group that had already suffered these consequences, they're being tempted now to forsake Christ. That's why this letter was written. They've been hammered in the past. He says, hey, remember, you've been through this and you've been faithful endure to the end and that's really the call of this whole letter is endure in faithfulness to christ until the end uh, you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one therefore don't throw away your confidence which has a great reward future reward not not in this life in all likelihood for you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of god you may receive what is promised that's future promise in christ's presence Hebrews 11, 36-38 describe the suffering believers in the Old Testament. Again, mockings. This is just uh, the attempt to humiliate someone into submission. I'm just going to mock you. I'm going to humiliate you into, until you agree with me. Scourgings, chains, imprisonment, poverty, afflictions, ill-treatment. The suffering of the faithful in the Old Testament as well as those in the early church are meant to serve as an example of things also like beatings, imprisonments, and up to execution. But it also included suffering like losing your property and your income, where faithfulness means I can't make the living I used to. I lose the job I had. Things that sound a lot like the suffering Christians face today here in the United States. We'll talk about that in a moment. Suffering for righteousness' sake in refusing an authority or in simply living to please Christ may or may not look like the early church's suffering in those severe categories. That may not. But suffering of one stripe or another is a given if we faithfully follow Christ. It's a given. It's becoming more likely as day by day proceeds. 
Friends, today, and this is one of the reasons we pray for persecuted Christians, the persecuted church around the world every Sunday, because this is not a historic anomaly to people all over the globe. This is a given. Christians are persecuted around the world today for refusing to convert, not just to Islam, but to Hinduism. In India, India is rife with persecution against Christians by Hindu nationalists for refusing to worship only in state-sanctioned churches, for bringing shame on your family members due to your faith. If you're a Muslim or a Hindu in a place where that's held strictly, and you come out in, you come out in your family as a Christian... You're bringing shame on all of them, and they don't like it. And, this, and for some, this means death by their family members. Rod Dreher wrote in a November 10th blog at the American Conservative this, There is no escaping the suffering ahead. This is He's talking about the United States. Indeed, the consistent testimony of those who were part of the underground church in Soviet times is that the survival of the faith depends on the ability and willingness of individual Christians to suffer well to live with the consequences of faithfulness well he said our mission is to endure what is coming with faith hope courage and love and to offer our church communities as arcs that fish shipwrecked people from the flood of liquid modernity to 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 bring them out to help them out of the culture that's now antagonistic to anything that affirms christ in life to be there for them uh, we're, I hope everybody here has seen uh, The Wizard of Oz. I trust everyone here has seen The Wizard of Oz. So this is not a spoiler. In the, in the movie The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy and Toto inspect the strange country that tornado has landed to them in. And they're looking around. They're trying to get the lay of the land. Dorothy famously says, Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. And friends, we are not in Kansas anymore. The Kansas, the United States you and I have known historically is a thing of the past. And, and this is not a dream that you're going to wake up from, uh, the, the trend that you see in the culture today. It's a brave new world. There are dangers here and now and dangers ahead Christians in the U.S. haven't faced in the past. And we do well to pay attention to the new landscape and the challenges. So I'll just give you some examples. This is currently, these are Christians that are facing the consequences of their decision to faithfulness here in the States. The the most recent is Leslie Elliott. Leslie is a a female. She has just a few hours left to complete her graduate program in mental health counseling from Antioch University in Seattle, Washington. But her degree completion is on indefinite hold because there's a new requirement that's just been instituted for and she must sign a pledge. She must sign a pledge. Now, She's a Christian, but she she identifies herself as a political liberal. She's a social political liberal. I want you to get this because this to, to understand what's going on. She knew the college and the program she was entering for this degree was liberal. And she's good with it because she says to herself, we're on the same page. Until she finds out she's not liberal enough. She's not woke enough. So the university's pledge requires her to affirm ideas she doesn't hold. She called the pledge a purity test, and this is what she said. 
I felt compelled to confess to this worldview that sees myself as an intersectional group of identities that have privilege and marginalization attached to them, and I don't agree with this framework. It feels like a theology, and it's not my theology. She says it feels like religion, because it is. Do you see the thing? You can worship Jesus if you want, but you must worship this God too. You can embrace your Christian morality someplace else, but you'll embrace our morality here or you won't be here. A West Point high school teacher in Virginia, Peter Vlaming, was fired. Now, this is four years ago. He's in the news because his case has been rejected by the courts. He filed suit in the courts, and it's coming up now in the Virginia State Supreme Court. That's why he's in the news now. Four years ago, Vlaming was a high school teacher, and this is the deal. He refused to call a young lady a man. So she, I, I don't know if she'd started surgical transitioning, but, but she's a woman. She's born a woman, but she's now saying she's a man. Dressing that or surgical, I don't know. The, the article doesn't go into that. Now, now, check this out. He did exactly what I would do because he's a loving Christian, and he's trying to honor Christ. So he said, I'm glad to call her by her new male name. She can tell me her name. I'm glad. So Susie now says she's Joe. He says as a teacher, I'll respect her calling herself a name. I'll call her Joe. But he said, what I won't do is give her male pronouns. He was fired because he would not call a woman a man. That's why he was fired. That's why he's remained fired for four years. And the courts have refused thus far his lawsuit because he won't lie, because he won't tell a lie. In 2021, these are cases you're more familiar with. Uh, it, was, it was a year ago last week. Bernal Stutzman, the florist in Seattle, lost her business. She was fined something like uh, almost $200,000. She lost her business. She lost her livelihood. She'd been in the court system for eight years. Why? Because she refused to provide a same-sex couple that she had been friends with the flower arrangements for their same-sex union. She just said, I'm a Christian. I don't believe in this. I can't do that. So for eight years, her life was on hold. The Supreme Court refused one year ago to hear her case, and so it was done. This is the consequence of her being faithful to God as she understood Christ required it. Uh, Jack Phillips uh, in Denver is probably the best known of all the Christians who've been through the court systems. He's been in the courts for 10 years. And guys, you, you need to understand, this is nothing but persecution. You can say they're in a legal setting. This is persecution. And the courts are the means to persecute the Christians. That's exactly what's going on. So he's been in the courts for 10 years. 10 years. So 10 years ago, he refused to decorate a cake for a same-sex union. He said, I'll sell you a cake. No problem. I'll sell you. you want a cake? I'll sell you a cake. What I won't do is put a message on the cake from me that says what you're doing is okay, because I know it's not. As a Christian before God, I can't do it. So he's been to the Supreme Court once. He won, sort of on a technicality. And guess what? He gets back home, and what happens? Because the Supreme Court weaned out, and because they didn't make a judgment on the case as it should have been, he no sooner gets back, and he starts his business up. He's still going, and a guy comes in and says, I want you to decorate a cake 
for my uh, gender tra uh, transition, for my transition. I want you to decorate a cake for my transition. Do you guys think this is a setup? He's just targeted because he's a Christian. And he says, I'm going to stand. I, I'll sell you a cake, but I won't decorate it. I won't use my talent to endorse a message I know is wrong. It goes against all that God calls me to. I'm going to be faithful. So he's in the courts again. And who knows how long this will go on because he wouldn't bend. He wouldn't bow. God's sustaining him. He's a delightful guy. All of these are delightful people, by the way. Oh, and by, and by the way, in the Supreme Court, this will come up before the end. This is in the next few weeks. The case of Lori Smith, also from Colorado. Not a friendly place to Christians, by the way. Lovely state, get in the mountains, but not a friendly place to Christians. Lori Smith's case will be heard in the Supreme Court in the next few weeks. She's a web designer, so she's an artist. She designs websites and she was requested, can you guess, to design a website for a same-sex union. And she said, I can't do it, I won't do it. That My faith in Christ says I cannot do that. She's in the court system. The Supreme Court will hear that here in the next few weeks. These are thoughtful, respectful, loving people whose lives have been upended, who are suffering because they're following Christ as they understand Scripture and conscience require. And the courts and the judiciary are being used as clubs to beat them into submission, to demand they comply with the zeitgeist, that is, the spirit of the age, or be removed from the land of the living, or at least from being able to make a living. This is suffering, and it's suffering for righteousness' sake. It is the consequence of faithfulness. Uh, Steve and I were at a conference in Denver, Colorado, just so happens, Denver, Colorado, last week. And our last evening Thursday, we were sitting at the bar having supper. And there's some guys from the conference around us. And I talk, I'm talking to Pastor Joe on my right. And a uh, lovely guy. And, and I just say, you know, uh, what are your concerns for your church? You know, as you look down the road, you know, and you're thinking about what's you know, your church and your people and just the times, you know, what, what's your concern? And he said, well, his chief concern for his church was that they were mistakenly putting their faith in politics instead of Christ for their future. And I said, I get that. That, that, that somehow, uh, Psalm, I think 117, better trust in the Lord than in princes. But his deal was, he, he said it, it borders on idolatry. This hope that men, that politicians are going to solve our conundrum. He's like, it's a betrayal of the gospel. They're forgetting God's ruling over all. God's the one. He wasn't, by the way, he's, he votes. He engages in, but it's just like, you know, that's not where his hopes lie. I told him, my concern, I understood his, and I have sympathy with it, but my concern is this, that this church and churches, evangelical churches, will not be prepared for the challenges to come will not be ready, have not done what Daniel and his friends did, have not drawn a line in the sand and said, I will not cross, I will not pass. What are we doing today to prepare for challenges to come? Guys, I'm not a prophet, and there are many Christians that think this world, this country is going to turn around politically. I have no, I have no such expectation. This last election, I think, for people who are holding for a red wave and conservative Republicans, it's pretty much smashed those to pieces. And guys, Roe v. Wade was overturned. We celebrated what's happened in this election cycle. 
Kentucky, a, a conservative state, more so probably than Kansas, couldn't pass a pro-life referendum. Kansas couldn't last summer. But pro-abortion policies passed in states across the nation this month. The, the, the tide has turned. I think that day in which Christians said, this country reflects things we believe in and value, Christian, a Christianized culture, I think it's a thing of the past, and I think to entertain our thoughts otherwise will not allow us to prepare for consequences and decisions in the future the way we need to. Have we drawn our lines in the sand? Have we determined there are things we will not do, will not say? Are we prepared to accept any consequence in order to remain faithful? And this is really the call. Have we counted the cost and are we willing to accept the consequences? Now listen to this. Some of you older ones will know whether this comes from, I'll, I'll read it first and I'll tell the rest of us. We shall pay any price. We shall bear any burden. We shall meet any hardship we shall support any friend we will oppose any foe to assure the survival and success of liberty you guys how many know where this came from it's a pretty famous quote thank you yeah the old guys thank you the wizened older men thank you men appreciate that i think that puts me in your category one of the older guys yeah that was John Fitzgerald Kennedy's 1961 inaugural address right here in the U.S. That's the mentality that Christians need. Isn't that a great phrase? Pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend. And basically, we're not going to go, we're not going to be a part of liberty being truncated, being submerged under some new world order. Well, see, that's what Christians, that's what we need. We need that backbone, that decision of mind and will that says we've counted the cost, we've drawn our lines in the sand. This is what Martin Luther did, right? Luther said, here I stand, I can do no other. I'm stuck because I know the truth and my conscience is not okay to sin against your conscience. That gets you in real trouble. This is what we need going forward. The time to prepare for an emergency is before the emergency. The time to prepare for challenges to faith is before they arrive. And I, let, let me say this too, before I've got some scriptures here to wind down with, I want to make sure we're on the same page because we're going to read some scriptures from this text. Your enemy, so JFK, any foe, that was the communists in 61. That was Soviet Union. That was Cuba. Um, who's your foe and in, in mine in, in all that's going on? This cultural tsunami that's coming in, total different set of gods, morality <clears throat> is it the lgbtq community is that the enemy that we're fighting is that the foe that we need to address because it's not right so ephesians 6 tells us who is the enemy it's unseen forces it's satan and, and his demons and the, they influence power paul talks about doctrines of demons there, there are doctrines, there are mindsets, there are, are cultural ways of seeing things. They're not merely human. Humans get caught up in this stuff, but humans are not the enemy. The enemy is the enemy. Satan is the enemy. The demonic agencies that empower concepts and ideas, that's the enemy. 
we, we want to lovingly give the gospel to anybody that'll hear. We, we want to pray for those who persecute and abuse us, right? So we're, we're not pointing at people and saying we're, we're taking them down. We're saying we, we are part of a spiritual warfare and the weapons of our warfare, Paul says, they're not carnal, they're not merely human, they're mighty, but they're mighty because of God and God's power. So we, we can't afford to be mistaken on this. Some of the people that you might think at this human level are your enemy today, you don't know that they aren't your brother or sister in Christ tomorrow. You know those Christians in Paul's day and they heard Saul of Tarsus went off to arrest those Jews in Damascus and oh, he's a Christian, he's a believer in Jesus and he's preaching the gospel. They'd be like, what? You don't know who God's saving. I don't know who God's saving. We're not praying against people, okay? Because we're presenting the gospel. As long as we have life and breath, that's our call. Uh, Are we read up in God's Word? And if you want to say, read your Bible, you can say, read your Bible. That's what I'm saying. Memorize it, meditate on it, make it your own. Ephesians 6, 13 and 17. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand the evil day, having done all to stand firm. So I'm set, right? I've got that posture. I've got that mindset that I'm set. I'm standing Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Guys, if you're a Christian without God's Word, you're weaponless in a fight. You've got defensive weapons, the shield of faith. We've got some other things, accoutrements it talks about there. But you have no sword if you don't know God's Word. You're defenseless to do anything offensively without the truth of God's Word. Are we in God's Word today, now, for tomorrow? Are we prayed up? And I don't mean this as a spiritual discipline. I met with the Lord. I I read my Bible for 10 minutes this morning and I prayed for five. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what Ephesians 6 is talking about, which is praying for myself and others related to the cost of my discipleship. Listen to this from Luke 22, 32. Jesus said to Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now, the key thing here is when he says it. Remember, Jesus says, hey, shepherd's going to be struck tonight. Sheep are going to scatter. Pete says, no way, Lord, I'm good. You and me, we're in this together. And Jesus disabuses of him of that, right? And he says, well, Pete, you know, not only are we not in this together, but you're going to deny me three times tonight. And Peter's not having it. He doesn't get it. Because he's going to face a setting that he's not prepared for. And he's going to cave. He's going to fail. Okay? I want two things about this. Jesus knows he's going to fail. But he says, he says it's okay. I've prayed for you. And your faith won't fail. You're going to fail a test, but your faith won't be vanquished. You're going to come back. You're going to be restored. So let me say this too. One of the things I loved in the book by Rod Dreher, whom I quoted earlier out of the book Live Not By Lies, was he described from these people in Eastern Europe that lived near the police station. The secret police, you know what they were doing? They were arresting Christians. They were taking them in. They were beating and torturing them to get information. Okay, so their Christian brothers and sisters that lived near the station, they saw who went in. 
and they assumed they caved. And they did cave. And when they would come out, they would tell them, that's okay. They'd welcome them back. Just like Peter. Just like Peter. So, you know what? Some of us, we're going to face trials and temptations, and we're going to blow it. We're not going to have proven to be adequately prepared. We didn't draw the line. We didn't count the cost. You know, it looked different. Jesus says to Peter, it's okay. I prayed for you. Your faith won't fail. You're going to fail, but your faith won't fail. You know, I will, I will hold you up. So whether it's ourselves we're thinking about for the future or it's our friends, we say, that's okay. We've all blown it, right? And we're going to pray for each other. We pray for each other before and after. This is Ephesians 6.18. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. What? To the end, keep alert with perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. See, we're praying for each other to accept the consequence, to keep the faith. Not to fail, but when we do, to get up and get back in it. Are we being faithful in small things, guys? And I challenge myself on this. Do you ever find sometimes I got that little tick and I thought the Lord maybe wanted me to say something or do something? Maybe I'm too lazy in the moment. Maybe I don't want to be disturbed, and I don't. But am I being faithful in those little things no one else may know about? But I know. What does Jesus say in Luke 16, 10? If you're faithful in a very little thing, you'll be faithful with much but don't kid yourself if you're not faithful he says dishonest if you're dishonest in a little thing guys you'll be dishonest with much what are we paving the way for towards future faithfulness if we're not being faithful in the little things are we being ruthless with our own sins and temptation this is a big deal sin compromises our conscience such that standing in faithfulness becomes more difficult if my conscience isn't clear and clean, I'm compromised no matter what lies before me without a clear conscience. Listen to this. This is 1 Timothy 1.19. Uh, Paul's talking about some who've not done well. He says, uh, we want to hold faith and a good conscience. Good conscience because in the ways we know, we're honoring the Lord, right? We're being faithful in the ways we know. By rejecting this, by rejecting faith and a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Life is sailing on the high seas on a ship, and, and a bad conscience wrecks me on the rocky shores. It disables me, a bad conscience. 1 Peter 3.16, having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Your good conscience, you, can stand, you stand up and you know they're hurling accusations and my conscience is clear. I, I'm not worried about a thing. My conscience is cleared. Christians should face the challenges ahead, and I hope that we do. You know, we say routinely, when we're thinking about these things, engendering fear is the last thing that any of this should do. It should engender faith. If God tells you you're in a fight, get ready for the fight. And trust Him for it. Christians should face the challenges ahead with joy, peace, and confidence, not because we won't suffer. Not because there might not be severe consequences to our faithfulness, 
but because God has prepared us for this time and these challenges. You can trust, if you're just walking with the Lord, just a little faithfulness all along the way, you, you can trust that you will be ready for the challenges and the tests God allows your way. It's in the face of suffering that Paul affirms in Romans 8 that we are more than conquerors in Christ. You guys ever read that passage and just say, what an odd irony in this passage? We love Romans 8 because it says what? Nothing can separate you from the love of God. But how does that passage continue? We're like sheep for slaughter. We're like sheep for slaughter, quoting Psalm 44. Lord, you're not going out with our army anymore. We're being slaughtered on the field of battle. That's what Paul quotes. That's Acts 8, or that's Romans 8. But then what does he say? He says, but we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Christians martyred, Christians suffering the consequences of faithfulness, they're not losers, they're more than conquerors. Their faith survives, and that's the mentality we need to take into the future. Hebrews 12 tells us to run the race of life with endurance, to refuse weariness and a faint heart by looking to Christ, who endured his own race with joy and is now seated in heaven. So guys, we want to make up our minds now, not just to be faithful, but to understand the cost of faithfulness. Dietrich Bonhoeffer used to talk about the cost of discipleship. We want to count the cost. We want to look at sober-eyed, sober straight ahead, look at the cost of discipleship and say yes to faithfulness. Well, stand with me if you would. I'd like to close by reading together from Ephesians 6. Part of that passage we've just looked at. Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 13. This is a call to face the challenges of faithfulness and be prepared to do so. Are those on, Dave? Oh, you don't have, oh, you don't have it. Guys, let me read to you. If, oh, you've got it on your study sheet? Thank you. If you've got your study sheet, grab that. It's at the very bottom of page 2. And uh, if you've got it, read it, and if you don't, listen. Guys, let's read it together. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day 